I grew up in a church with a very large cemetery on the property. And as a child, for me and my friends, there was no better place to hang out. And so anytime we had dinner on the grounds, or if there was any kind of special event where we could sneak away, or really if there was just any downtime in between something going on during a normal church day, we would find any opportunity we could to get out to the cemetery. Sometimes we would play hide and seek when we were little. Sometimes we would just sit out there and talk because it was kind of set back and in, in private so we could just talk and have some time with ourselves. But mostly we just explored. We would go through and we would look at all the different headstones and read them and I can still remember very vivid details about some of these. We would go and look for maybe the oldest tombstone, the furthest date away from the time we were living in because the church was built in 1905 and so there were tombstones that, that dated back a very long time. We would go and maybe look for the oldest person that was buried in the cemetery we would just go see what all the tombstones had to say, and each of us had a favorite. I remember distinctly my favorite tombstone. My favorite in the whole cemetery was about five feet tall, which seems pretty excessive in its own right, but it was shaped to look like a tree that had been cut down. And so it looked like it had been cut off at the top, and there were even nodes up and down the side of it where it looked like branches had been cut away, and so obviously we climbed it. And I distinctly remember getting in trouble several times for climbing it, but in retrospect, looking back, especially because I believe this tombstone was from about the 1950s, if someone was going to put out the extra money to have this large headstone that looked like a tree with perfect things to grab and climb, clearly their intention was, after I'm gone, I want children to use my gravesite as a play place. That had to be the reason, because why else would you possibly do that? But looking back, thinking about all the tombstones that I was able to see and all the information that we gathered from this, there's something very strange about cemeteries. Because with each of these graves, they represented a life. There was a story to go along with each one of those. Triumphs and tragedies, successes and failures, good times and bad times, all of these things, impacts that they've had on other lives that rippled far beyond what they could ever imagine, sometimes sin and brokenness that ended in tragedy. But all of those lives and all of those stories and all of those things that took place were reduced down to just a few words written on a piece of stone. Sometimes no more than a first name, a last name, and a date. Coming face to face with that kind of mortality naturally raises a lot of questions. We look at cemeteries and death and we say, why does this happen? How did we, as a, as a, as a people, how did we get here? What's the point? Is there more to life and is there more to death than spending an entire lifetime that can be summarized in a few words on a piece of overpriced rock? The big story of the Old Testament is not ignorant to the epidemic of death in our world. In fact, it's filled with it from start to finish. 
We see each passing story stained by death, often through spilt blood and breathless, lifeless bodies. It's an important part of the Old Testament story. And so if you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, we're looking at not a specific passage of Scripture, but the entire breadth of the Old Testament. And we're looking at some of the themes and the motifs that make it up and lay the foundation and the groundwork for what happens in the New Testament specifically and what Christ came to do. And so we've looked at the theme of creation and calling We've seen covenant, and we've even seen failure throughout the entire Old Testament. And today we're going to focus on death. And we're going to see how the ever-present reality of death in God's big story reveals deep truths about the nature of God, about the nature of humanity and creation itself, but also how we learn to read Scripture. And we're reminded that something better is coming. That death one day will be put to death and God is already digging its grave. And so we're going to look at a lot of stories this morning that cover the the full spectrum of the Old Testament. But I want to read a passage of scripture out of the book of Psalms, chapter 23. And I believe these six verses help us to get a full understanding of how the people of God approach death in light of God's goodness and mercy. So Psalm chapter 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, and He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word, Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is not ignorant to the things that break our hearts. That your word is not unfamiliar with our pain and it's not unfamiliar with our struggles. God, we thank you that you are not unfamiliar with death. But not only does death grieve you because it affects your children that you created, God, but we know that you know death personally as you gave your one and only son to offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf to put death to death. And so, Father God, today as we talk about something that surely has impacted all of us in the room at one point in time, help us to be very aware of the reality of death, the sadness that comes along with it, but also God, help us to remember that it's not forever, that death is temporary, and that one day Christ will come to make all things right and all things new, and every stain and spot and blemish that sin has brought into this world, including death, will be a distant memory and a thing of the past. 
So, Father God, speak to us now through your word. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to look this morning at three different types of death that we see inside of the Old Testament. And the first is the most common and the thing that we probably all thought about when I said the word death the very first time, and that's physical death. When our bodies breathe their last and all the functions shut down and we're dead. And the strange thing about death is how rarely we view it as strange. I think we're certainly maybe a more desensitized generation than there ever has been because we can consume so much through a variety of different types of media, even down to just the news itself. Death is a very ever-present, constant reality in our lives. But I think death is something to a certain degree that we've always been desensitized to because it's always been a part of life. But I can count maybe on one hand the times in my life where I've really felt the strangeness of death. One of those times in particular, I was at the funeral home for the visitation for my grandfather. And I was probably about maybe 17 years old at the time. And so we were in the funeral home and you're just kind of standing off and processing everything. And I happened to look out one of the doors and I could see across from our room across the hallway into another room where another funeral was taking place, and there's happened to be an open casket. And that might have been, if not the first, one of the first times I've ever been around an open casket. And I remember having this really strange moment. It just felt like it was just me and this guy across the hallway, and he was very dead, and his casket was very open, and I was just looking at him, realizing that he was dead. And so in the middle of all this stuff going on in that room, he wasn't. And I just was really overwhelmed by the fact that this is a weird thing that's happening. This is a weird thing that I'm a part of right now. And it's one of the few times where I really have felt the strangeness of death. When we see death take place in Scripture... The first death that happens, the first death that's depicted in God's story wasn't a death that came from old age. It wasn't a death that came from natural causes. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the story of two brothers named Cain and Abel. And out of a fit of jealousy, Cain, the older brother, killed his younger brother. But what's really bizarre about that story is that even though this is the first time that death makes an appearance in God's story inside of the Old Testament, Cain's response is very strange. He's surprisingly not surprised. He's very cold and very calloused, very ordinary. Because God approaches Cain and he says, hey man, where's your brother? And Cain says, eh. I don't keep up with the guy. I mean, we're close, like we're probably friends, we're brothers, but, you know, I don't know where he is. And so Cain's response just seems so bizarre considering what just happened. But then God's response reminds us of just how abnormal death really is. God says, yes, you know where he is. He says the the ground itself is screaming out from your brother's blood. This is something that that affected the earth itself. Because that's how unnatural death is in God's good creation. The story of Cain and Abel reminds us that death is not normal. 
that death does not belong here. That it's an abrupt disturbance and disruptance in God's good creation. In fact, more specifically, death is uncreation. We see the unraveling of what God does in Genesis chapter 2 as God breathes life into humanity. Now all of a sudden we see that breath leaving. And the Bible even says that what comes out of dust will return to dust. It's the complete unraveling of God's work of creation. And it doesn't stop with Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 5, we have a genealogy, the first genealogy in the Bible, this list of names. And it talks about people who were born, and all of those people die. That this person was born, he lived this many years, and then he died. And then this person was born, they lived this many years, and then they died. And the epidemic of death spreads all throughout the world. Until we get to the story of Noah that we've looked at over the past several days. And when God, as we've talked about, voiced his displeasure with what was happening on the earth, the sin had become so great that God was very angry. But in particular, God points out that it was the sin of violence, that it was people rising up against one another and people striking each other down that had God so overwhelmingly angry and regretful that he decided to start over through Noah and his people. And we see death on a very wide scale take place in Noah's story. Weirdly enough, this is a story we use a lot for children's stories. It's a very bizarre children's story. But I remember in particular about just this weird disconnect sometimes we can have with the story of Noah. When I was teaching at the Christian Learning Center in at Walnut Grove High School a few years ago, my classroom was about two miles away from the school, and so I would drive through Walnut Grove. And around Christmas time, everybody put out their decorations. It was a lot of fun. I love looking at Christmas decorations. And there was one in particular that caused me a little bit of pause. (laughs) It was a snow globe, you know, one of the big inflatable snow globes. I really like those. And I would fill our yard with them if Stephanie would allow me to because I think they're amazing. I like little snow globes. And when things are abnormal sizes, it makes me very happy. So when things are very small, I get happy. When things are very large, I get happy. And so this is a big snow globe and the snow floats around in it. It's usually Snoopy or something like that. of it and I get very happy. This one was a bit bizarre because it was Noah's Ark, which felt weird at Christmas time anyway. But there was a there was a banner above Noah's Ark in the snow globe that said Joy to the World. And I felt like that was a really insensitive thing for Noah to do as everyone around him is drowning at his doorstep. It was a very bizarre thing that happened. But again, I think there's something internally where we kind of want to take some of these stories and, and polish them up a little bit because death is so unnatural and we'd rather not think about it. But death continues all through the Old Testament. We see another bout of death through water at the Red Sea when God, after sending an angel of death into Egypt to set his people free, then brings the waters of the Red Sea down on top of the armies of Pharaoh. We see an entire generation of people die in the wilderness as they're trying to get from Egypt into the promised land. We see battles and wars and crimes committed. And we see that death has no prejudice. We see in the Old Testament the death of kings and the death of peasants. We see the death of prophets and we see the death of pagans. We see the death of the just and the righteous and we see the death of the unjust and the wicked. To use Paul's terminology in the Old Testament, we see death reign from Adam to Moses and even beyond. And we see 
everything that God did in creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 being unraveled because of the presence of sin in the world and with it the presence of death. And over and over and over again, as we look through the Old Testament narrative, the reader is reminded that death is a strange foreigner in God's good creation. Death is a trespasser. Death is even something that's unclean. In Numbers chapter 6, as all of the guidelines are being laid out for what the people of Israel are going to be as God's people, we see a very unique thing in Numbers chapter 6. It's called the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarites were a group of people who made a deeper commitment to, to God. And so there were all these things they had to do. They had to watch their diet. They didn't cut their hair. They separated themselves in a lot of different ways. In verse 6 of Numbers chapter 6, it says, All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, this Nazarite person shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother or brother and sister. If they die, they shall make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Listen to how serious this is in verse 9. It says, if any man dies suddenly beside him, which would be just really awkward anyway, if a man dies suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. And on the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves, two pigeons to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body, and he shall consecrate his head the same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of the separation and bring a male lamb for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. That's weird and serious. And God says this, this, this Nazarite person that has set themselves apart for this next level of consecration and separation, that death is so unclean and so unnatural that if you were going to try to draw that closely to God, that this is how seriously you have to take it. And Numbers chapter 6 reminds us of just how strange death is supposed to be viewed. Death is more than a normal, natural part of life. It's a problem. And it's an enemy. It's a consequence of sin. And throughout the Old Testament, death would stand as the undefeated champion over all humanity until one day it would meet its match. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so we have physical death. But the other side of death that the Old Testament shows us is that there is, there's a spiritual death that comes because of sin. And another strange thing about death is that it's often a very slow process usually takes a lifetime to accomplish in fact you guys are probably going to be a little closer now than you were before i started all of us are we're just on that pathway that's how it works but in genesis chapter 3 we see the the first bit of sin enter into god's story and in Genesis chapter 2, God put these people in this perfect garden, in this perfect habitat for them. And he said, you can do whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can eat whatever you want, except there's this one thing that I don't want you to do. And God says, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. And sure enough, in Genesis chapter 3, that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. But what's weird is that they eat the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat and they didn't die. 
They didn't drop dead. In fact, we see God take them out of the garden, and according to Scripture, they lived nice, long lives and had children and all of this kind of stuff. And so we have to look at that passage of Scripture and say, was God wrong? An even stranger question was, is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, was he right? Because the temptation that he offered up to Eve is, listen, God doesn't really want you to eat this because he thinks it's bad for you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And I promise you, you're not going to die. And they eat the fruit and they didn't. But if we look closer, we see something happening beneath the surface. Because in Genesis chapter 2, there's this description of Adam and Eve that's kind of an odd thing to put in here. But it says that they were naked and unashamed. That they had nothing to hide. That they had no fear at all. And the first thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve do what they're not supposed to do, the Bible tells us that they realized that they were naked and they went and they hid from God. For the first time ever, they felt shame. And they felt guilt. And it says that they tried to sew up some clothes out of fig leaves so that they could hide their nakedness and so they could hide their shame. And what we see there is a picture of self-righteousness. They knew they messed up and so they tried to fix their problem on their own. And what we have there are some early signs of spiritual death. Shame and guilt and self-righteousness point to the fact that something is happening beneath the surface. But there are other reminders in the Old Testament that spiritual death is a reality for all of us. In the place where the people came to worship God, inside the temple, there were layers. And so if you were someone who was a Gentile or a non-Jewish person, there was a courtyard on the very outside and you could go there. You could stay there. And then if you were a Jewish woman, you could come inside to the next level. And if you were a Jewish man, you could come inside to the next level. And then if you were a priest, you could go inside the next level. But in the very heart of the temple, there was this room, this place, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Spirit of God dwelled. And only one person could go in there one time a year. And the temple that was supposed to be a place where people could go to worship God was actually a reminder that there was something keeping us out of the presence of God. This idea of spiritual death is especially prevalent in the prophets and in the literature of when the people were in exile. In the story of Jonah, if you were here several months ago when we went through the entire book of Jonah, we saw in chapter 1, there's this constant reference to a language of Jonah going down. That Jonah didn't go away to Nineveh, that Jonah went down, or excuse me, to Tarshish, that Jonah went down to Tarshish. And when he got on the boat to go to Tarshish, it said that he went down into the boat. And it was this euphemism in the ancient world of dying. That every step that Jonah took away from God's calling, it was this reminder of Jonah's spiritual death. And even in Jonah chapter 2, when we see this psalm that Jonah offers up, this prayer that Jonah offers up to God, it's filled with this imagery of death. And Jonah saying, I was at the, the gates of Sheol, I was at the gates of death, and death itself was grabbing me and encompassing me, not because of his physical situation, but because of his awareness of his spiritual state before God. In the book of Jeremiah, it gets pretty dark. And at the end, towards the end of chapter 7, God is talking about this valley. And it's this representative place where there are all of these temples and shrines being built amongst God's people to foreign gods. 
And they were starting to worship the, the pagan gods like Baal. And God says, if that's what you want, then that's what you'll get. But your spiritual death is about to be visualized. And he said, there's about to come a time of great death and agony and sorrow. And he says, all of these valleys are going to be known now as the Valley of Slaughter. That is a really intense title. But it was this thing that happened that was brought on because God's people were so spiritually far from where they were supposed to be. The book of Lamentations is a book of people crying out to God out of sadness and out of brokenness because of their sin and because of the state that they found themselves in. And the book of Lamentations is a very interesting book because it's written in a very unique style. The book of Lamentations is written like like an elegy. It's It's a series of funeral songs that would be sung when someone was dead at their memorial service. And so it was this, this book of songs portraying Israel's brokenness and death. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision of the, the presence of God, of the glory of God leaving the temple, reminding the people just how far they had fallen. From beginning to end, we are reminded in God's story in the Old Testament that death goes deeper than flesh and bone. That physical death is merely a symptom and a result of spiritual death. And because of that, death is a spiritual problem that infects each and every person born, and it requires a spiritual solution. And so we have physical death, we have spiritual death, and then also we have substitutionary death. Perhaps the most famous story of this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. We see Abraham constantly presented as a man of great faith. And God comes to Abraham and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your only son, Isaac, the son that you've been waiting on your whole life, that son that we talked about a couple weeks ago when God made a covenant and a promise to Abraham that he was going to make him into a mighty nation and that his children are going to be a blessing to the entire world. That son, Isaac, on whom all those promises rest, God says, I want you to take that son and I want you to go up this hill and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham, again, being a man of faith, knowing that that God could do infinitely more than he ever expected or anticipated, was faithful. And he starts walking up the hill. And again, as the story goes, Abraham gets to the place where he's going to offer the sacrifice and he builds the altar. And as he's about to do as God has instructed him to do, we see this angel come in and stop him and say, no, 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 your faith is, is solid, man. And he has a goat tied up in some, in some briars. And he's able to offer that sacrifice in place of his only son. But that's not the first time that we see substitutionary death in the Bible. In fact, it happens a good bit earlier in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, Adam and Eve, after their sin, felt naked and ashamed. And there was nothing they could do to properly cover up their shame. And so before God gives them their ultimate consequence of escorting them out of the garden, out of the place that he had created for them, and out into the world where they were going to have to deal with the consequences of sin, he doesn't send them out naked and ashamed. But the Bible tells us that God took the skin of an animal and covered them up. That God gave them a proper covering to hide their brokenness and to hide their shame. God took the life of an animal to cover the shame of his people. 
And as we go through the story, we see more and more of these sacrificial deaths offering up. Sacrifice, offering up the life of another in place of your own, has been around really as long as death itself. We see the big picture of that in the Passover story, where the people of Israel didn't just get off scot-free. They had to do something when the angel of death passed over. And so God says, you're going to take the best lamb that you have. You're going to take the fattened lamb and you're going to offer that lamb's life in place of your firstborn son. And that lamb is going to take the place of your family. There was the scapegoat where they would have this goat and they would would symbolically place their sin on the goat and drive it out of the city, out of the presence of God. And of course, all through the Old Testament, there's the sacrificial system where the priests and the leaders would go on behalf of the people and they would offer doves and goats and sheep and bulls and they would offer those animals on behalf of the people for the atonement of their sin as a way of saying, take this life and not ours. And it can feel like a kind of a loophole then maybe the sacrificial system was a way to fix death. That if we could offer something on behalf of ourselves or in our own place, then maybe we don't have to deal with the consequences of our sin at all. But in reality, it was just applying a band-aid to a hemorrhaging wound. It only delayed the inevitable. Because Abraham died. And Isaac died. And all the priests that offered all the sacrifices and all the people that those sacrifices were offered on their behalf, they all died. See, when we look at the sacrificial system and the substitutionary death in the Old Testament, we find that it's the right system. It was just the wrong substitute. It was the right action that someone needed to step in the place of the people of God to be able to offer themselves as a sacrifice one for all, but none of the sacrifices were adequate. But from the earliest parts of Scripture to the end of the Old Testament story, the cycle of death seemed to spiral out of control, consuming everyone in its path. We find the inescapability of physical death. We find the inability to change spiritual death. And the futility of the substitutionary death of sheep and bulls. But those substitutions were telling part of a story that had not yet been revealed. Those sacrifices held inside of them the hope of a perfect substitution who would one day taste death and be consumed by it. But he would be a bitter pill for death to swallow. The death toll of God's big story points forward to the death of one man who would defeat death from the inside out. And in a place surrounded by death and sorrow, the prophet Isaiah saw this coming. And in Isaiah 25, verses 8 through 9, talking about this future representative to come, who now we know as Christ, as Jesus of Nazareth, God's only Son, Isaiah said this, that He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, and we have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And we're reminded, even from the voice of God's prophets, that while suffering and sorrow 
and death find their place in God's big story, they won't reign forever. Because in the fullness of time, in that exact right moment in history, as we look backwards and the the prophets were looking forward, God sent forth His Son. It was born of a woman, born under the law, born just like all the rest of us into a world full of sin and brokenness. And yet, even though he was tempted in every way that we were, he was without sin and he was without failure. And the one who had never failed stepped in on our behalf and stretched out his arms on the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all. And the Bible says that anyone who believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life. Because Jesus on the cross and through His resurrection three days later solved the problem of spiritual death. In our community groups, we're looking at the book of Ephesians. And Paul tells us that Christ, through His death and resurrection, that when we trust in Him for His sacrifice and His grace and His mercy, when we trust in that salvation, that we go from being people who were spiritually dead to people who have been made alive in Christ. But God didn't just have a plan to fix spiritual death. Because Jesus didn't just raise from the grave spiritually, but we see Jesus having a physical bodily resurrection. And Paul tells us that if we die like Christ died, then one day we will be raised again like Christ was raised again. That we will have a physical resurrection. That God is bringing the spiritual and the physical back together again. And we will live in the presence of God as God's children without the pain of sorrow and sickness and death for all of eternity. Our confession of faith every week after the sermon has been from Revelation chapter 21, which we've been calling the end of God's big story. And it's the fulfillment of that promise that Isaiah made that one day God will wipe away every tear. Every stain and every whisper of death will be taken away and death will be buried in itself. And God's people will be alive with Christ forever. And so we have that promise that even though death is an unnatural, ever-present reality in our lives, that it's not the end of the story. Because the Jesus who defeated spiritual death in and through us when we trust in Him for salvation is coming again to clean up the rest. And one day, we'll have that promise. But until then, we can hold on to that hope. And we can mourn as we see the tragic reality of death in our lives, maybe on a regular basis. But just like Jesus told us, that we don't mourn like those who have no hope because we know that death is not the end of the story, that death is not the final enemy, but Christ is the victor over death in the grave. And so let's hold on to that hope together. Let's encourage one another with that hope. And also, let's be a light to a world of darkness and brokenness, showing the world that something better is coming through the way that we live and even the way that we die.